0: Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty.
1: For our friends on the Internet... It is a dark and stormy night
0: <laughs>
1: here in Smyrna, Tennessee. Surrounding counties are under flash flood warnings. And according to the weather predictions, sometime while we're talking tonight, the storms are going to hit Smyrna and there's going to be the, the deluge outside. But a, a small but mighty group of us have gathered here tonight April's going to go out and start gathering animals two by two. <laughs> and we're just going to see if we can get through this together. We are in the Book of Hosea tonight. This message will be on the home page at the GCA website. Someone asked me this week. They said, "Hey, I went over to the Second King's series of messages over on the listen link in the archives. And I can't find the last two weeks of messages. Where are they in the archives? Well, they're in a new folder called Hosea because we're in the book of Hosea now. We're not in the book of 2 Kings. And that's why they're over there. Both of them. Both of them, yeah. The last two weeks are over there in Hosea. Last week, I said on a couple of occasions that we were in 2 Kings 10 when we jumped off to Hosea. And that was just wrong. We're in 2 Kings 14 when we jumped off to Hosea, and the reason we did it was because we reached that point in Israel's history where these, the minor prophets, are starting to predict to Israel in particular, the northern tribes, that they are about to be punished by God, to be taken into bondage, into what we know as the Assyrian captivity, and so we paused as we were going through 2 Kings. We pause long enough to go look at some of what the minor prophets have to say. And then when we get back to 2 Kings, we will see the things that the prophets predicted come to fruition. Now, an interesting thing happened last week. And I found it very, very reassuring and proof of a contention that I have long held. Last week, after we got done with the lesson, a few people said to me, I really enjoyed that teaching tonight. I really enjoyed that lesson tonight. And I said to them, do you realize what I did tonight? I really didn't teach much. I read a whole lot of scripture. And if you go back and listen to the recording, you'll find that really my comments were very few. I really didn't feel it was necessary to expound very much on what we were reading, because what we were reading was interpreting itself simply by comparing. We compared Hosea 1, and we compared some of Ezekiel, and we compared some of Jeremiah, and it all meshed together in order to prove my contention that the prophets across the board, Israel's prophets, all say the same thing. They all lay out the same story. They all say Israel is guilty, Judah is guilty. We're going to look at it again tonight, just terribly, terribly guilty, and all of Israel's prophets all say with a unified voice that God's not done with Israel, and that he's going to return them, and bring them back to their land, and establish them, and David's greater son is going to rule over them, and that is the consistent testimony all the way through the Old Testament. So last week, all I did was read it, and people said, boy, that was good teaching. I'm reminded of a story about Winston Churchill who went to a social party over there in London one time back in the days before TV or internet or any of that when there was just kind of radio but newspaper really held the day and when you would have uh, society columns about who was at what party and what they said and what they did. Well, apparently the write-up on Churchill was that he was just a a sterling conversationalist. Everyone was so taken with him. And he, that night, had purposefully entered the room determined not to say a word. But he listened to other people talk. And as those people carried on about themselves, they walked away finding him fascinating. And so in the (laughs) columns, they wrote up what a great conversationalist he was. Well, sort of a similar thing happened last week. I keep saying, I keep contending that the Bible is sufficient, that if you just put the Bible in front of people, it will tell its own story, it will teach its own theology, it has the power, as the word of God, to convert people. That's why Paul would say things like, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, because it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Because the Word of God, the Gospel of God, the, the testimony of God, the words of this Bible actually have power behind them and are actually sufficient to feed God's sheep, to enlighten them, to educate them, to entertain them, to uh, engage them. And so last week, that's what I did. I just laid big chunks of the Bible in front of you all, and I ended up getting credit for it. People were like, ooh, we're really teaching. And I said, no, I I was reading, is what I was actually doing. Yes, sir? I read a
0: Spurgeon quote today that reminds me of that same thing. Someone was complimenting him on his his teaching, and he said, well, I defend the Bible the same way that I would defend a lion. Just open a cage, get out of the way, and let it defend itself. Just
1: unleash it. Lion will defend itself. Yeah. The contention that I've held to for a very long time is, number one, God's people are not offended by God's word. God's word does not upset or offend God's people. Sheep love sheep food. You've heard me say that over and over again. And also, you don't need my opinions. What you need is the word of God. And whenever we gather here together in this place, I try to give you a good, healthy dose of God's word. My job is to connect the dots. My job is to help you understand how this fits together. But then if all you come away with, if all you leave with, is uh, Jim's ideas or Jim's opinions or Jim's comments, then you know more about Jim, but you don't know much about God or his word. So I said all that to say, we're going to do that again tonight. We're going to bite off a big, healthy chunk of the Bible this evening. And in order to do that, it's going to be a lot of reading. But I argue, again, another point, I argue that the word of God is perspicuous. Do you know what I mean by that word? There's a big silver dollar word you can use later in a sentence and impress your friends. I just mean that it's clear. That's all that word means. So many folks seem to think that the word of God is a difficult book, that the Bible is hard to read or hard to understand. And I say no. I like the phrase that the Ethiopian eunuch used when Philip walked up to him and said, do you understand what you're reading? And he was reading in the book of Isaiah. And he said, how can I accept some man guide me? I like that concept of guide. How can I accept some man guide me? I don't need him to explain it all to me or interpret it for me. What I need is somebody to guide me through it so that I can get it for myself. And I argue that the Bible is clear and understandable. And not at all mysterious. There are certainly some mysterious things said, like thunder that speaks that John's not allowed to write down. That's a tad mysterious. But so much of the Bible tells its own story. And so I see my job as just kind of guiding, connecting dots, and then putting the word of God in front of you and letting it do its work. And that's the method that I've been hammering away at for 14 years here at GCA. And I think the end result of this experiment is that when you put the word of God in front of people consistently, what happens is those people are either driven out or they become Christians, because there's really no other option. The word of God will do its work and conform and change and convert you, or it'll drive you away. And those are the only two options, which is why we have very, very few people at GCA who are fence sitters. We don't have a lot of people who hang around just kind of not knowing (laughs) because eventually they either can't take it anymore or they say, I got to have this. I got to have more of this. We are in Hosea chapter 2. In Hosea chapter 1, God told Hosea to go marry a woman who was a harlot. And then God compared that woman and her harlotry to Israel and the way that Israel had been chasing after their foreign gods. God made a one-for-one comparison between a woman committing harlotry and Israel chasing after their Canaanite and their Egyptian gods. Last week, the reason that we went to Jeremiah and Ezekiel was to show that that paradigm or as Alex likes to pronounce it, that paradigm to show how that language of harlotry permeates the prophecies of the Old Testament because this is a thematic element to this idea because God is really trying to drive home the point that chasing after any other God than him is on par with a wife who decides to go out and be a whore. And that language of husband-wife also permeates the Old Testament. God refers to Israel as his own, as his wife. He says that they did not follow after him, though he was a husband to them. And so the language of divorce comes up. We're going to see that language today, this language of... I've put her away, I've put her out of my house. She's not being a wife to me, I'm not being a husband to her. And that language of husband-wife, that relationship of husband-wife is all the way through the Old Testament to describe the relationship that God has with Israel. When he brought them to Mount Sinai, after the 40 years that I described it last week as sort of a courtship, some of the language is almost like honeymoon kind of language, early courtship language, but once he gets to Mount Sinai and establishes a covenant with them, he has separated them from all the other people groups on the planet and said that they are exclusively his own. They belong to him. And so when they go chasing after foreign gods, Canaanite gods, Egyptian gods, when they chase after any of the Baals, when they go up on their high mountains to worship or into the groves and and make their cakes to the queen of heaven, any of that God sees as a kind of betrayal that is on par with, a man finding out that his wife has taken other lovers. And as I said last week, God could have chosen any language he wanted, any relationship he wanted, but I think he chose that one because of the emotional impact of it. There's not a man here in the room who wouldn't be horrified and chagrined to find out that that's what his wife was all about. Well, God doesn't hide it. He starts right out with, go marry a prostitute. So there's no question about what kind of woman she is. Tells Hosea, go marry a prostitute and have children with her. And as I mentioned to you, we'll see more evidence of it here in chapter 2. Really, only the first child, Jezreel, seems to be Hosea's flesh and blood child. But the next two, lo Ruhamah and lo Ami, no mercy and not my people, seem to be children of harlotry. And so what's God going to do about it now that he has described that situation, now that he has described the broken relationship and the betrayal of his betrothed, the only people group that he has drawn to himself the way that he drew Israel, the only people group that he has covenanted with the way that he covenanted with Israel, the only people group to whom he made these kinds of promises and national promises and gave kings and sent prophets and gave the word they're the only group that have that. And despite all that, despite the uniqueness of the relationship and the singularity of the relationship, nevertheless, they turn on him, they betray him, they run from him, they chase other lovers. So what is God going to do about it? Well, if it was you or me, any of us, we would say, well, then that's it. Mm. We're done here. If you found out That the one person you had betrothed yourself to, the one person you had the unique relationship of marriage to, the one person out of all the women in the world that you had actually married and brought home and put into your house, if you found out that she not only was unfaithful, but had committed multiple whoredoms, you're going to have a talk. You're going to go, all right, I think we're done here. It's not what God does with Israel. And this is the really important separating place between biblical theology and so much of the theology that permeates the church world today. Because the church world today says Israel broke the law, Israel was untrue to God and even rejected their Messiah, and the conclusion they come to is therefore God is done with Israel has cut off Israel, has divorced Israel, never to return. And then, as we've talked about the last couple of weeks, they go hunt and peck through the Bible and find promises that are made to Israel and say, those promises are now to us because Israel was unfaithful. It's not what the Bible says. The Bible says over and over again, and we're going to see it tonight twice, even though we could show it time and time again as I think we did last week and the week before I'm going to show you yet another example of it where the prophets say you're absolutely guilty you have absolutely run from God you've cheated on God you've committed harlotries horrible harlotries and God is going to punish you and he is going to scatter you and he is going to take you out of your land and he is going to make you guilty for your harlotries and then they never leave it they never leave it at you're done, you're out, you're divorced, they all say, but God is gracious, and he's going to bring you back, not for your sake, but for sake of promises he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but because of promises he made to King David, because God, who doesn't change, keeps his word even when his people don't, and that should make you very grateful, because that same God is the God we're counting on to be gracious to us, even though we have failed to keep his word. So it amazes me, it astounds me, it flummoxes me, it confuses me when preachers will say, I want God to be faithful to me, and I expect God to be faithful to every promise he's made to me and to his church. But all those promises he made to Israel, well, those are all negated. Why are they negated? Because of Israel's behavior. Well, then what about your behavior? Oh, it doesn't count. My behavior, it's a different deal. My behavior before God, God forgives me in Christ, and I'm forgiven, and it's all okay. What about Israel? No, Israel, nope, gone, sorry. Cut them off because uh, God, you know, in, in their case, God changed. I have a book at home where the author actually argues. I won't tell you his name for the moment. He actually argues that some of the words that are used in the Old Testament Mean something different in the Old Testament than in the New Testament. Words like election, words like forever, words like eternal, like eternal covenant, eternal promises. He says they don't mean the same thing in the Old Testament as they mean to the church in the New Testament. <laughs> because that's how peculiar and twisted people's thinking gets when they start denying what the Bible actually says. The Bible consistently says the same thing which is that God is faithful even to the most faithless of people. Mm -hmm. And when you're somebody like me, you need that. Okay, finally, finally, Hosea 2. I told you last week that I believe that the first verse of Hosea chapter 2 is actually the summary statement in Hosea 1 because starting back in verse 9 of Hosea 1 God has said, the Lord said, name him Lo Ami, for you're not my people, and I am not your God, and yet the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered or measured, and it will come about that in the place where it is said to them, you're not my people. It will be said to them, you are the sons of the living God and the sons of Judah and the sons of Israel will be gathered together, and they will appoint for themselves one leader. The importance of that should be driven into your memory by now. The importance of that is that by the time you get to 2 Kings 14, Israel and Judah are fighting each other. They're making alignments with foreign nations against each other and going to war against each other. Enmity between Israel and Judah, the northern and southern tribes, and that is why it's so important in Ezekiel 37, when he has the two sticks, one for the house of Ephraim, one for the house of Judah, and he puts the two sticks together in his hand. And when people ask him what's the meaning of the sticks, he says that God's going to rejoin the house of Israel and the house of Judah. At the time that the prophets were saying this, there was a tremendous amount of enmity between those two people groups. And so God very specifically says the sons of Judah and the sons of Israel will be gathered together and appoint for themselves one leader. They haven't had one leader, one king, since the days of David and Solomon. And it was during Solomon's time that God specifically took the kingdom away from Solomon's posterity. Jeroboam became their first king. Jeroboam led them into apostasy. And then all the way through 1st and 2nd Kings, all we ever read was that the successive kings in the north, the successive kings of Israel were all compared to Jeroboam that they followed after and in the footsteps of Jeroboam. They did what their father Jeroboam did, and they went and they worshipped their foreign gods. And so Israel and Judah have been separated. They've been politically separated. They've been religiously separated. And yet God promises all 12 tribes brought together in unity with one king. It hasn't ever happened. So what are we going to say? Do we say, well, never mind, (laughs) God's done with Israel? Or do we say, it hasn't happened yet, but it still has to happen? Well, that's certainly the position I take. It still has to happen because God has said it over and over and over again. The sons of Judah, the sons of Israel, will be gathered together. They'll appoint for themselves one leader, and they will go up from the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. Say to your brothers, Ami, not Lo-Ami. But now, Ami, uh, and say to your sister, Ruhama. In other words, say to your brothers, my people. Say to your sisters, mercy. So this all has to happen. This still has to come. And that's why I say chapter 2, verse 1, is the summary statement of what we just read out of chapter 1. So starting in verse 2, Contend contend with your mother. He is saying to the children of Israel and referring to Israel nationally who gave birth to the children of Israel. That language, children of Israel, again, permeates the scripture. They're offspring of Israel. Contend with your mother. Contend. For she is not my wife and I am not her husband. In other words, he's saying, I'm not acting. I'm not being a husband to her. She's not acting and she's not being a wife to me. She's not my wife. I'm not her husband. But go contend with her and let her put away her harlotry from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. Lest I strip her naked and expose her as on the day when she was born. And I will make her like a wilderness. I will make her land a desert land. And I will slay her with thirst. Okay, now that language... I'll strip you naked and expose you like the day that you were born is actually language that, again, the other prophets pick up. And they use that language of God finding Israel in their unwashed, unclean, just-born state in order to say that had God not grabbed them, they wouldn't have survived. God is not only a father to them, But he is also nursemaid to them, ultimately husband to them. Everything they have, everything they are, God has given to them. And yet, as we'll see as we continue through chapter 2 here, and yet they have taken the gifts that God has given them because they are his wife, because they are his beloved and betrothed. They've taken those gifts from God, and then they have wasted them on their lovers, So turn to the book of Ezekiel. Uh, You can keep your finger in Hosea or not. We'll be back here, but it might be a little while. Go to Ezekiel 16, because Ezekiel picks up this exact same dynamic, this same language. Ezekiel, as I told you last week, is part of the second deportation of Jews out of the southern kingdom, out of Judah under Nebuchadnezzar the high and the mighty go first Daniel and his companions went in that first wave Ezekiel was with the common folk most of Ezekiel's ministry is in Babylon and yet he's not only preaching a message of guilt and fault and repentance but also a message of restoration to a people group that are living under Babylonian captivity they've been taken out of their land so now Israel, the northern tribe, is out of their land. They're in the Assyrian captivity. And now Judah's been taken out of their land because, as we saw last week, God called them two whoring sisters, Ahola and Aholabah, and said that Judah was actually more guilty than Israel because Judah got to witness Israel's deportation and God's punishment on them. And so they should have cleaned up their act, having seen God's anger against Israel for their whoredoms and for their chasing after gods. But Judah didn't clean up her act. Instead, she became every bit as bad. So God ends up saying that Judah is even more guilty and that in some ways Israel is justified by the fact that her erring sister was even worse than her. So chapter 16, God's going to remind them of who they are and what they were like when he found them. Chapter 16, verse 1, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations, and say, Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, Your origin and your birth are from the land of the Canaanite. Your father was an Amorite, and your mother was a Hittite. As for your birth, On the day that you were born, your navel cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water for cleansing. You were not rubbed with salt or even wrapped in clothes. No eye looked with pity on you to do any of those things for you, to have compassion on you. Rather, you were thrown out into an open field, for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. By the way, has any of that kind of changed as far as the world is concerned? Is Israel beloved now? No. That land over there, that area, the people who belong in it? No, No, they continue to be abhorred. We just heard today Khomeini, Khomeini, however you say his name, said within 15 years, no more Israel. Just going to blow them off the map. They're so determined to just annihilate Israel. And there's no way to explain it. Logically, rationally, there's no way to explain it. Except that because they are the people of God, the world just hates them. And God says, it was that way from the day of your birth. Verse 6, when I passed by you and I saw you squirming in your blood, I said to you, while you were in your blood, live. And then he repeats it. I said to you, while you were in your blood, Live, I made you numerous like plants of the field, and then you grew up and became tall and reached the age for fine ornaments. Your breasts were formed and your hair was grown, and yet you were naked and bare. Then I passed by you, I saw you, and behold, you were at the time of love, so I spread my skirt over you and I covered your nakedness. I also swore to you and entered into a covenant with you so that you became mine, declares the Lord God. Then I bathed you with water. I washed off your blood from you. I anointed you with oil. I also clothed you with embroidered cloth and put sandals of porpoise skin on your feet. And I wrapped you with fine linen, and I covered you in silk, and I adorned you with ornaments. I put bracelets on your hands and a necklace around your neck. I also put a ring in your nostril and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. And thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your dress was of fine linen silk and embroidered cloth, and you ate fine flour and honey and oil so that you were exceedingly beautiful And advanced to royalty. That's all true of the history of Israel. God did all that. When he found Israel, when he came and got them in Egypt, they were mere slaves. He advanced them to the point where foreign kings and queens came to see the splendor of Solomon. And said things like, I'd heard about it, but now that I see it, the half wasn't told me. Just an astounding kingdom that God gave them. So what did they do with it? Verse 14, then your fame went forth among the nations on account of your beauty, for it was perfect because of my splendor, which I bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. But you trusted in your beauty and you played the harlot because of your fame. And you poured out your harlotries on every passerby who might be willing. And you took some of your clothes, made for yourself high places with various colors, and you played the harlot on them, which should never come about nor happen. He's talking about the fact that they made high places of worship. And they went up there on the mountaintops, and they worshiped the foreign gods. And they ended up doing it with the very gifts and splendor that God gave them. Because of his love and covenant with them, and they used the gifts of God in order to commit their harlotries in chasing after foreign gods. Verse 17, you also took your beautiful jewels of my gold and of my silver, which I had given you, and you made for yourself male images that you might play the harlot with them. Then you took your embroidered cloth, and you covered them, and you offered my oil and my incense before them. Also my bread, which I gave you, fine flour, oil, and honey, with which I fed you. You would offer before them for a soothing aroma. So it happened, declares the Lord God. Moreover, you took your sons and your daughters, whom you had borne to me. Notice that language. Once God had chosen Israel as his nation, every child born to them being a gift from God in expanding their nation and expanding their count, he said, Those are my children. And you took my children that were born to me and you sacrificed them to idols to be devoured. Were your harlotries so small a matter? In other words, he's saying, sarcastically, there, it wasn't enough that you went out and committed harlotries. Oh, no, that wasn't enough for you. You also had to burn our children. Do you see why God was a tad upset? From God's perspective, can you see how truly heinous, how truly terrible chasing after other gods is? But they didn't just chase after other gods. I mean, they put their body and their wealth behind it, and they actually took their children and burned them to Molech. And so God says so. Verse 20, moreover, you took your sons and your daughters whom you had borne to me, and you sacrificed them to idols to be devoured, were your harlotries so small a matter? You slaughtered my children, and you offered them up to idols by causing them to pass through the fire. That's the worship of Molech. And besides all your abominations and harlotries, doesn't it seem like it would be enough? God says, and besides all that, you did not remember the days of your youth, when you were naked and bare, squirming in your blood. Mm. You didn't remember what I brought you from. You didn't remember that when you had nothing and no one, I came and got you. And I gave you everything you have, including life. You know, if you take a newborn baby, and you set the baby aside, and you don't tend to the baby, what happens? It dies. Baby dies. Why was the baby in the field in the first place? Because the parents had cast the baby. It says, your cord wasn't even cut. As soon as the baby was born, they got rid of the baby. And God says, you'd have died in the field if it hadn't been for me. And he expected them to remember that fact. By the way, he expects us to remember what he's done for us. Mm -hmm. Where we've come from. Where he took us from. Where he found us. The pit out of which we were dug. Anyway, so... You've slaughtered my children, you've committed your harlotries, and you don't remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare, squirming in your blood. Verse 23, then it came about, after all your wickedness, and then Ezekiel adds, woe, woe to you, declares the Lord God, that you built yourself a shrine and you made yourself a high place in every square You built yourself a high place at the top of every street, and you made your beauty abominable, and you spread your legs to every passerby to multiply your harlotry. You also played the harlot with the Egyptians, your lustful neighbors, and you multiplied your harlotry to make me angry. Behold now, I have stretched out my hand against you, and I have diminished your rations And I have delivered you up to the desire of those who hate you, the daughters of the Philistines who are ashamed of your lewd conduct. Moreover, you have played the harlot with the Assyrians because you were not satisfied. You even played the harlot with them and still were not satisfied. You also multiplied your harlotry with the land of the merchants, Chaldea. That's Babylonia. Yet, Even with all this, you weren't satisfied. How languishing is your heart, declares the Lord God. While you do all these things, the actions of a bold-faced harlot, when you built your shrine at the beginning of every street and you made your high place in every square in disdaining money, you were not like a harlot, but you adulterous wife who takes strangers instead of her husband. Men give gifts to all harlots, but you give your gifts to all your lovers to bribe them to come to you from every direction for your harlotries. God is saying, think about the illogic. You're not only a harlot, you're a lousy one. Because men will pay a woman to have sex. You're paying men to have sex with you. That's the way God saw it, because all the gifts, all the things that he had given them, They're now giving to their lovers, giving to the foreigners. You adulterous wife. Verse 34, thus you're different from those women in your harlotries, in that no one plays the harlot as you do, because you give money, and no money is given to you. And in that way, you're different. Therefore, O harlot, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, because your lewdness was poured out and your nakedness uncovered through your harlotries with your lovers and with all your detestable idols, and because of the blood of your sons that you gave to the idols, therefore, behold, I shall gather all your lovers with whom you took pleasure, even all those whom you loved and all those whom you hated. So I shall gather them against you from every direction and expose your nakedness to them that they may all see your nakedness. And thus I shall judge you like women who commit adultery or shed blood are judged. And I shall bring on you the blood of wrath and of jealousy. I shall also give you into the hands of your lovers... And they will tear down your shrines and demolish your high places and strip you of your clothing and take away your jewels and will leave you naked and bare. And they will incite a crowd against you and they will stone you and they will cut you to pieces with their swords. And they will burn your houses with fire and execute judgment on you in the sight of many women. And then I shall stop you from playing the harlot and you will also no longer pay your lovers. See, do you see the extreme God went to? God is saying, I'm not going to allow you to sin against me continually. I'm going to stop your harlotry by bringing your enemies on you. And when they punish you, you will stop your intermingling with them because you will understand that they hate you. This is the the sovereign God of the Bible who will not be made fun of, who will not be belittled, who you will not cheat on, who you won't run around behind and think he doesn't know. You go and commit your sins in the dark and think he doesn't realize. He does know, and if he loves you, he'll stop you. But the stopping is sometimes quite painful, which I think is why the writer of Hebrews would say, whom he loves, he chastens, Mm -hmm. scourges every son he receives. And then the writer of Hebrews says, and if you haven't been scourged, you're not a son. So this is the way that God is. This is the way that God works. If you belong to Him, you belong to Him. No ifs, ands, buts. If you belong to Him, you're His. Israel is His. He chose Israel. He made covenant with Israel. He gave gifts to Israel. He made promises to Israel. They belong to Him even though in their sinful humanity, even though in their desirous egocentric flesh they went chasing after other gods, other lovers, other nations, even though they turned their back on him and committed their harlotries, he wasn't going to let it go on forever and he was going to stop them, but the way he was going to stop them was going to be through punishment. Is that the end? No. No. He, got over his anger. he says, I will get over my anger. The time is coming. So, Verse 42, after he's done all this punishing, so I shall calm my fury against you. My jealousy will depart from you and I shall be pacified and angry no more. Because you have not remembered the days of your youth but have enraged me by all these things, behold, I in turn will bring your conduct down on your head, declares the Lord God, so that you will not commit this lewdness on top of all your other abominations. Behold, everyone who quotes Proverbs will quote this proverb concerning you. They'll say, like mother, like daughter. Did you know that was a biblical phrase? Did you know that reached all the way back to Ezekiel? We say it to this day, well, like father, like son. Like mother, like daughter. And the proverb means you're going to end up being just like your your mother. She's a prostitute. You're going to be a prostitute. She's rebellious. You're going to be rebellious. You're the daughter of your mother, says verse 45. You loathed your husband and your children. You were also the sister of your sisters who loathed their husbands and their children. Your mother was a Hittite. Your father an Amorite. Now, your older sister is Samaria. Samaria is another nickname for the northern tribes. Your older sister is Samaria, who lives north of you with her daughters. And your younger sister, who lives south of you, is Sodom with her daughters. And yet, you have not merely walked in their ways or done according to their abominations, but as if that were too little, you acted more corruptly In all your conduct, than they, as I live, declares the Lord God, Sodom, your sister and her daughters have not done as you and your daughters have done. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had arrogance, abundant food, careless ease, but she did not help the poor or the needy. And thus they were haughty and they committed abominations before me. Therefore, I removed them when I saw it. Furthermore, Samaria did not commit half your sins, for you have multiplied your abominations more than they. Thus, you have made your sisters appear righteous by all your abominations which you have committed. Also, bear your disgrace in that you have made judgment favorable for your sisters. Because of your sins in which you acted more abominably than them, they are more in the right than you. Yes, be also ashamed and bear your disgrace in that you have made your sisters appear righteous. Nevertheless, I will restore their captivity, the captivity of Sodom and her daughters, the captivity of Samaria and her daughters, and along with them your own captivity in order that you may bear your humiliation and feel ashamed for all that you have done when you become a consolation to them. And your sisters, Sodom with her daughters and Samaria with her daughters, will return to their former state, and you with your daughters will also return to your former state. As the name of the sister Sodom was not heard from your lips... In your day of pride, before your wickedness was uncovered, so now you have become the reproach of the daughters of Edom and all who are around her of the daughters of the Philistines. Those surrounding you despise you. You have borne the penalty for your lewdness and your abominations, the Lord declares. For thus says the Lord God, I will also do with you as you have done You who have despised the oath by breaking the covenant. Okay, so that is 59 verses of chapter 16 of Ezekiel. Bad news, bad news, bad news, bad news that includes God exhausting his own fury, his own punishment, pouring out so much punishment on them that he's going to reach the point of saying, I'll actually call my own fury. I'm going to keep pouring it out on you till I'm done, till I feel better, but you're guilty.
0: Yes. The ESV refers to it as satisfying his wrath, not just calming it, but he's going to continue doing it, and doing it until, he until
1: he's satisfied, yep. till he feels like okay, that's good, that's enough.
0: You've got what you deserve.
1: Then at verse sixty, in the midst of all that, as bad as they are being, as horrible as Israel is, as bad as Judah is, Judah being twice as guilty as Israel. Judah being so bad that she's justifying Israel and Sodom. After all that, God says, starting in verse 60, nevertheless, that's a good word. Despite all that, nevertheless, I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. That's right. That's the right reaction. So why is God doing it? Not because of them. Clearly, the theology that we believe and teach here, that men are sinful and so internally depraved, so truly, totally depraved that they can't do anything to satisfy God. And so we say that if anybody ever stands before God, it has to be a matter of grace. It has to be a matter of God just being astoundingly merciful. Here's an example of that kind of mercy. Remember what he said? Go say to your sister, mercy. This is the kind of mercy he's talking about. I'm going to be good to you, not because of you. If I treated you the way you deserve to be treated, I would have stopped at verse 59. I would have just punished you until I was tired of punishing you, and that would be the end. And I would leave you in your driven out state, and I would just be done with you, which, as I mentioned, sadly, is the way too much of the modern church still thinks the relationship between God and Israel is. They think, well, God's just done with Israel. Yes, sir?
2: I was just thinking, even if somebody says, well, he really means the church here, what do they do with the fact that judgment has to be executed? You can't really have it both ways. You can't say he's switching to the church.
1: If it's the church in verse 60, then it's the church in verse 43. Mm Right? Right? It's the same people group throughout. Nevertheless, I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth. I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. By the way, what covenant is that? Notice he did not say, I will reaffirm the Sinai covenant. Because the Sinai covenant led to this. The Sinai covenant could do nothing but make them guilty. So he can't take them back to Sinai as if that will fix anything. So instead, he says, I'll make a different covenant, an everlasting covenant. We know it as the new covenant. It's the same thing Jeremiah promises them in Jeremiah 31. I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. We looked at it last week. Not like the covenant that I made with them when I took them by the hand out of Egypt, which covenant they broke. Mm -hmm. Right, they broke that covenant. So you can't go back to that one. He has to establish a new covenant. He has to start again an everlasting covenant. Verse 61, and then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you receive your sisters, both your older and your younger, and I will give them to you as daughters, but not because of your covenant, not because of the law, not because of Sinai covenant, not because of the covenant that belongs to you. I will establish, verse 62, my covenant with you. And you shall know that I am the Lord. There's that. Say to them, Ah, me. They will be my people. I will be their God. Thus I will establish my covenant with you, and you will know that I am the Lord, in order that you may remember and be ashamed, and never open your mouth anymore because of your humiliation, when I have forgiven you for everything you have done, the Lord God declares. So what's his intention for Israel ultimately? Restoration, forgiveness. Right? Okay, Back to Hosea. All of that was because Hosea 2:3 says, "I'll strip her naked and expose her as on the day when she was born." Now you know what that's talking about. Again, the prophets use the same imagery. They use the same storyline in order to tell the same situation, which is Israel is terribly guilty. They have forgotten all the benefits that they had with God. They have forgotten the days of their youth when God found them and brought them out of Egypt and gave them a land of milk and honey, when God made them a magnificent kingdom and gave, gave them great kings. They forgot all that and went and chased after their foreign gods. And so that's the situation that they're in as these prophets are speaking to them. So Hosea 2, verse 3, lest I strip her naked and expose her as on the day when she was born. And I will make her like a wilderness. I'll make her desert land and slay her with thirst. Also, I will have no compassion on her children because they are the children of harlotry. By the way, that's the second Example, They were called children of harlotry in the first chapter. And here in the second chapter, that's why I believe that the second and third child were, in fact, children of harlotry. For your mother, verse 5, has played the harlot. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax and my oil and my drink. Remember that the Baals, the Baal gods, were agricultural gods, and so they had a form of worship to the agricultural gods where they would bring their sacrifices to the Baals, their grain or their meat or all of that kind of stuff, the same way that God required grain offerings and drink offerings and all the different offerings. Every time he blessed Israel, they had to bring a portion back to him. That portion belonged to God. But here Israel was taking it to the Baals, to the things that are not gods, to the gods that they formed with their own hands out of rock and out of wood. And the things they were taking to those gods were the very things Yahweh, the God of Israel, gave them. He gave them food. He gave them rain. He put them in the land flowing with milk and honey. And what did they do? Rather than worship him with it, They went and chased after their foreign lovers with it. And that's why Ezekiel would say, you go pay your lovers. Because they took the things God gave them. They would take the things from their genuine, true husband and spend those things on their foreign lovers. Therefore, what's God going to do about it? Therefore, starting in verse 6, what's God going to do? Does he say, I'm going to cast you out. I'm going to throw you out for good. I'm done with you. I'm finished. No, God gets proactive. Because God recognizes that if he waits for her, she's not coming back. Mm. So God does what he needs to do to make sure she winds up with him. Therefore, behold, I will hedge up her way with thorns. I will build a wall against her so that she can't find her paths. And she will pursue her lovers, but she will not be able to overtake them. She'll seek them, but she won't find them. Then she will say, I'll go back to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. Okay, same picture, same idea. In Ezekiel, it was, I'm going to punish you until you have no other option but me. Here in Hosea... He says, I'm going to do it this way. I'm going to hedge you around. I'm going to cut off your paths. I'm going to build walls so that even if you seek your lovers, you can't get to them. And eventually, you're going to get hungry, and you're going to get tired, and you're going to get cold. And you're going to go, I know. I'll go back to my husband. That's God's design for Israel. What he's doing to them right now is that very thing.
2: That's the prodigal song language
1: the prodigal son language and
2: you suddenly appreciate what you thought was nothing
1: Exactly right <laughs> but first you have to get to eating with the pigs yes. and then you go I'll go back to my father's house It was better there She will not pers- or she will pursue her lover says verse 7 she won't overtake them she'll seek them she won't find them and she'll say I'll go back to my first husband for it was better for me then than now For she does not know that it was I who gave her the grain and the new wine and the oil and lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Therefore, I will take back my grain at harvest time. After all, it's his. So now he's saying, I'm going to cause famine. I'm going to cut off the grain. Therefore, I'll take back my grain at harvest time. And my new wine in its season. And I will also take away my wool and my flax. Given to cover her nakedness. And then I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers. Does that sound familiar? It's exactly what we just read in Ezekiel. This is the method that God's going to use. He's going to expose them. For the harlots that they are. And no one will rescue her out of my hand. Verse 11. I will also put an end to all her gaiety. To her feasts her new moons, her sabbaths, and all her festal assemblies. What is God doing? He's cutting off the religion. I said a couple weeks ago, if you go looking for lost tribes, don't expect them to look Jewish. Don't expect them to be keeping Jewish worship or Jewish feasts. They're going to have lost their sense of who they are. They're going to have lost their religion. They're going to have lost their history. God is just going to cut them off completely from these particular things, new moons, Sabbaths, feast days. Well, those are the very things that identify the Israelites, the very things that they were taught and instructed by Moses at Mount Sinai, those days when they had to go to Jerusalem and they had to worship before God and feast with God. God said, I'm going to take all that away from them, so don't expect them to be keeping them. I will destroy her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, these are my wages which my lovers have given me. So God gives Israel food, vines, fig trees, wine, good things to eat, dates, good food. And she says, oh, this is because I'm a harlot, I'm getting paid well without realizing it's God that's giving her these things. These are my wages which my lovers have given me, and I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field will devour them, and I'll punish her for her days of the bales, when she used to offer sacrifices to them and adorn herself with her earrings and her jewelry and follow her lovers so that she forgot me, declares the Lord." Therefore, now look at this language, because, again, if it was you, if it was me, if it was any human, you would say, I'm angry, and I'm going burn in my anger, and I'm never really going to get over this. That level of betrayal, I'm never going to get over it. Listen to the tenderness in this language, starting in verse 14. Therefore, behold, I will allure her. Isn't that interesting language? I'll win her back. I'll draw her to myself. After I've cut her off from her lovers, when she reaches the point of, well, I guess I go home, there's nothing for me out here, I'm hungry and starving, I guess i go back to my husband and see if he'll take me back. He says, I'm taking her back with love. I'm going to allure her back to me. I will bring her into the wilderness and I will speak kindly to her. And then I will give her her vineyards from there and the valley of Acor will be a door of hope. And she will sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up out of the land of Egypt. And it will come about in that day, declares the Lord, that you will call me Ishi. The I at the end means my, that's my husband. You will call me my husband. You will no longer call me Baal E, which means my master. You'll no longer see me as just the one who lays down the law at Sinai with thunder and lightning and says, if anybody touches this mountain, I'll kill them. I'm not just going to be the frightening God up there on the mountain. I'm actually going to be beloved by you, and you will know my love, and you will call me my husband. Completely different relationship. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth. How is it going to happen? God's going to do it. How is he going to get them to stop worshiping the Baals? He's going to change them. How's he going to change them? There's the new covenant again. There's that promise. I'm going to make a different covenant. I'm going to make an everlasting covenant. I'm going to make a new covenant. Jeremiah 31 says, I'm going to write my law in their hearts and on their inward parts. In other words, I'm going to change them from within. I'm going to put my spirit in them. I will occupy them. I'll change them the same way that you were changed, the same way that the spirit of God took up residence in you and I'll remove the names of the Baals from her mouth so that they won't be mentioned by their names anymore. In that day, I will also make a covenant with them. See, there's that promise of a covenant still to come with Israel, that promise of a new covenant. There is a movement in in the church these days called New Covenant Theology, and I was a part of that as it was kind of getting its feet and starting up and John Riesinger really leading the charge. And just a couple of weeks ago, there was a conference of New Covenant teachers, thinkers, authors over in Franklin. And I've watched the whole thing online. I've watched the whole conference online. And the biggest problem I have with New Covenant theology is that they extricate Israel and Judah from the New Covenant.
2: Mm.
1: How do you do this? When, in fact, this covenant that you and I are under, this covenant that we're so dependent on, this covenant of salvation by grace through faith, is an act of grace on God's part that he would let you or me in. But he has promised to bring Israel in. Mm -hmm. And if you have a theology that says, especially if you call yourself new covenant theology, and your theology says, but that covenant isn't for Israel or Judah? What are you thinking? Because they have the promises. They have the covenants. They have the prophets who all with one voice say that God is not done with Israel and Judah, but that he is going to restore them under the covenant that belongs to them, which is the new covenant. Which in Jeremiah 31 and Hebrews 8, God says, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And that's that language that we've seen all the way through the Old Testament the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, house of Israel, house of Judah. There is no way to extricate them from their covenant and keep the rest of your theology straight. In that day, says verse 18, in that day I will also make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field and with the birds of the sky and with the creeping things of the ground and I will abolish the bow and the sword and war from the land. Has that happened yet? Is there a ceasing of war over there in the Middle East these days? No. No, there's the promise of war. There's the constant onset of war over there. And yet there is a promise from God that he's going to restore them to their land and abolish the bow and the sword and the war from their land, and I will make them lay down in safety. Oh, what a nice promise. Wouldn't you love to hear God say, lay down, you're safe, I got this, I got you covered. I'm going to take care of your problems. I'm going to take care of your enemies. You have nothing to worry about. Lay down in safety. Wouldn't they love to hear it? Oh, man, they would love to hear that. And then look at the language in verse 19. And I will betroth you to me forever. Forever. I will betroth you to me forever. Forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in loving kindness and in compassion, and I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and then you will know the Lord. Okay, so the New Covenant, Jeremiah 31, it says that no man will have to say to his brother or say to his neighbor, Know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least to the greatest. Right, God has made this promise to Israel, national Israel, northern and southern tribes, collective 12 tribes, that he is going to form a covenant with them that includes the land and the beasts of the field and the birds of the sky, all the creeping things in the ground. The land that is promised to them is going to be at peace. He's going to abolish the bow and the sword. No war in the land. You're going to lay down in safety. And then I'm going to betroth you to myself forever. And then I'll betroth you this way. Despite your sinfulness, despite your depravity and your whoredoms, and your chasing after your foreign gods, despite all that, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in loving kindness and in compassion. And I will betroth you to me in faithfulness so that you will know the Lord and it will come about in that day I will respond declares the Lord I will respond to the heavens and they will respond to the earth and the earth will respond to the grain and to the new wine and to the oil and they will respond to Jezreel and I will sow her for myself in the land and I will also have compassion on her who had not obtained compassion. Remember where this began? Lo, ruhama, lo, Ami. Not my people, no compassion. When I bring them back into my land and betroth them to myself and do all this for them, then they will have compassion from me. And I will say to those who were not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. That's the end of Israel's story. Now, are you getting a feel for this? Yes. All right.
2: I just now God is just declared that He's going to take Israel, Abraham's descendants, is His bride, It's His wife, and who is Christ going to marry?
1: The Church, because we're taken to the marriage supper of the Lamb.
2: That's right. Yeah. And we will be the rule. We we'll rule with
1: Christ. To rule and reign with Christ.
2: And. and there's no, in, in, this, they keep saying that these people, the Israelites, will be continued generation after generation. Right. So will they, will they continue as ordinary
1: people? I think through the millennium they will, but once you get to the new heavens, new earth, new Jerusalem stuff, chapter 21 of Revelation, a whole new deal. But through the millennium, you're going to continue to see Israelites living on the planet, flesh and blood people establishing the kingdom that God has always promised them. Yeah, But you touched on something that I sort of was going to avoid tonight. But when you look at the language between God and Israel of husband and wife, erring wife, but then he'll betroth her, take her back, I'll be a husband to her. And then you get to the New Testament, and Paul talks of the church as being betrothed as a chaste virgin to one husband. And then you get to Revelation 19, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Even Jesus saying, I go to prepare a place for you. I can come and take you to my father's house. That's all marriage language. That's that's what husbands did. They'd go to to their father's house to prepare a place for their wife, come and get their wife, take her home. And so if you just let the words on the page say what they say, then you again find a distinction between Israel and the church. We talked about it last week, that the Bible continues to make distinctions between Israel and the church. And when you conflate the two, that's when the Bible gets confusing. But if you understand the categories, and you just let the categories stand, then you can see why Paul, in Romans 11, is just such an important, Romans 9, 10, 11 is such an important New Testament passage, because it is Paul talking about Israel and making that distinction, that after the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, then all Israel will be saved, who he identifies by saying as touching the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. As touching the election, they're beloved for the father's sake. That's distinction again. So whether Old Testament, whether New Testament, and certainly the language of husband and betrothal and you know, Israel being the, the wife of God, the erring wife of God, and the church being the bride of Christ, those are two different distinct categories in language and marriages and people, and, and you have to recognize it. It means something. Yeah? I think we're done here. I think we've wrapped this up. Anything else?
0: It just, uh,
1: we're not I done here. They, we haven't wrapped this up. <laughs> yes?
0: Uh, I mean, you've got Hosea, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Zechariah. I mean, all these prophecies about Israel, restorations and all that. I, mean, I'm just, I can't understand how folks can just miss that. You know, how they can just... I mean, you almost have to ignore those whole books of the Bible to, I mean, yeah. just, just totally focus to on the New right. Testament. And I'll tell you how they do it.
1: Uh, Alex? Yes, sir. Um, church of Christ. Yes, sir. They call themselves a New Testament church, right? Yes. Yes. So what does that mean? They spend a lot of time in the Old Testament? Oh, no. Oh, no. Okay, that's how.
2: No, in fact, my, my Old Testament is still brand new from my Church of Christ. <laughs> <laughs> I can smell it.
0: Never cracked it
1: that's how you, you just start at Matthew and you really
0: right exactly
1: and then you jump right to the New Testament and you say this is really all about us and you never take the time to teach Old Testament how many churches have you ever been in that take the time to teach the Old Testament like we're able to do here it's too much effort people aren't patient for it people in pulpits don't want to put in the work and so people walk around real vague about all that, and it's not vague; it's specific, as you just said. How many times has God said this? And that's the whole point of what I've been doing here the three weeks, the last three weeks is just to say, look at all the evidence. It, it has to drive you to a conclusion.
0: It's too much effort; and it becomes boring because they think it's an afterthought. Right. So I mean, if you're actually reading it for what it is, right? There's still future promises. And there's yes. Incredible stories in this, right?
1: If you, you start, start with the now. idea that it's all about the church and it's all about me, and really the whole point of Christianity is me, <laughs> and really the whole point of my religion is you know God wants me to be happy and satisfied, well then you don't have time to read Zechariah.
2: You might also well read the Hittite chronology.
1: Exactly. You've got no time for that stuff.
2: When I was in Florida at my nephew's church, and they believe in, in election and all that. We were singing songs, and I I said, Josiah, listen, did you know that we're in the kingdom
1: now? That was a discussion I had with an amillennialist years ago, where he kept saying, The kingdom is now. Realized eschatology, the kingdom is now. And I said, You must walk around all the time singing, Is that all there is? (laughs) Because, (laughs) what? This is, oh, yippee. You feeling real glorified? You feel real kingdomified here? I mean, just. Satan's bound. Satan's bound, not deceiving the nations except maybe the whole Middle East, you know. And, and, oh, yeah, Russia, which is, and, oh, yeah, China, which is, and, oh, America. But he can't deceive the nations anymore. Makes no sense. What?
0: I'm just going to say, that they, I mean, if, if they're responsible for ushering in the, the kingdom, uh, you know, spreading the gospel, they have to feel some serious pressure right now, just because everything seems to be going the opposite way.
1: It's a tough time to be a post-millennialist, isn't it? The world isn't exactly getting better. No. All right. We're actually done done.
0: Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.